I will work day in and day out to wake up and smell the coffee. We want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by John Crudus, the Labour MP for Dagenham and Raynham, and the author of a fantastic new book released recently, A Century of Labour. Welcome to the podcast, John. Well, good to be with you. I think I think we had a chat a few years ago, didn't we? We did, yeah. About the last book, yeah. So it's, it's great to have you um, back on. And the first question I'd like to ask is, apart from the fact that it is 100 years uh, since the the first Labour government was formed. What other reasons did you decide to want to write the book? Well, that that's a very good question, actually, because um, I was approached um, to to see if I would write a history of the Labour Party for the hundred year um, century of the first Labour government. Um, and the first question I asked was, why? Because you know, there's masses of Labour history out there. I mean, you, you go into any bookstore, you go on Amazon, you go to any you know, Guardian bookshop, there's reams of it. So the first question is, why would you want to add to it? Is there anything more to be said, really? And that was, I I, played, I toyed with that for ages. And in the end, partly because I then took a load of time to read and reread masses of Labour history. And maybe we'll come back to it later. But my sense was that there was a gap in terms of some of the ideas that have informed the history of socialism and the history of the Labour Party. There's an awful lot of, um, I mean, the most usual way of going through Labour history is through biography. So, you know, and there's some fantastic biographies of Keir Hardy, Ransom McDonald, George Lansbury, you know, Clement Adley, Tony Blair. You know, you go through the whole ritual. Um, but that tends to, to my mind, overemphasize the role of the individuals in history, you know, the great men and women. Um, or you can look at specific Labour governments. So there's, there's a really good couple of books out there on the first Labour government. Um, and you can look at the personalities. You can look at the factions. You can look, But it seemed to be there, there was very little done about the ideas that have informed Labour history. So I, I thought there might be a different way of approaching it, which I'll try to do in the book. So that was the first question of why would you do it? And then the second question is, you know, how could you do that? You know, uh, and that proved, again, quite a challenging question. So those two basic questions, you're absolutely right to start this conversation about why why would you do it over and above the question that there's a date there that signifies 100 years. Why would you do it? Because there's so much out there. Is there anything more to say? And I think there is. There might be. I mean, it's not for me to judge, really, because my view is there is a different way of navigating this this extraordinary, turbulent history. Um, and that's what I've tried to do in the book. But I, that was the one I toyed around with for quite a while because writing a single volume history of the Labour Party is a really big thing to do. I mean, you know, and I thought, well, it's a great thing to do as a Labour MP who's approaching the end of his parliamentary career. It's a great sort of indulgence to do your own sort of history of it. But at the same time, it's quite a challenge in terms of the reasons to do it, you know? So. It was something it's something I toured around with quite a while and I was resistant for quite a while to doing it. But in the end I jumped in, jumped in with both feet, so to speak, um, and come out the other end. Because it, I mean the other thing is because it was tied to a specific date. It was sort of non negotiable. Yeah. You can say can I have a few more months to finish it because you know, there was a bit of a cliff edge there yeah. in terms of the actual final date, which is the twenty second of January nineteen twenty four, which is the 
the, the date of the first Labour government. So it, it it was quite daunting and quite intimidating, actually. But in the end, it got I got it done. So yeah. you got there in the end. I got it in the end. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I find fascinating that you um, address at the beginning of the book uh, three particular questions: the origin question, the death question. And the purpose question. Could you just expand a bit on on what you mean by those? those yeah, questions? yeah. Well, they're sort of shorthand, really. Those three questions to um, to navigate a lot of labour history. Because if you look at it, it seems to me these three questions jump out. How do you try and put together all this labour history and begin to get to some of the questions that sit behind a lot of the contributions. And if you look at Labour history, up until the 1950s, despite some dreadful election results like in 1931, what jumps out at you is this question, which I call the origins question. There was a sort of inevitability attached to the role of Labour. It was like socialism was going to happen. History was going to unfold. And so the first question, really, origins question is, was it inevitable? Was it inevitable that a party of Labour would arise in the first quarter of the last century and overtake the Liberals? Um, and a lot of the Labour Party did think it was inevitable. It was inspired by certain Darwinian thoughts, certain Marxist determinism, certain religious views, utopianism, which assumed that Labour and a view of social and scientific progress attached to the Labour Party, which assumed that it was inevitably going to succeed. That sort of changed somewhat in the early 50s, given changes to the class composition of the country, um, post-war affluence, um, mass consumption, liberation. And then the origins question and the inevitability of socialism inverted into a question of could Labour ever win again? Was the party over? And this I call this the death question. Um, it was it informed a lot of 1950s revisionism. Um, in, later, it was famously captured by Eric Hobsbawm when he asked, "Is the forward march of Labour halted?" It informed a lot of the modernisers in the 1980s, New Labour, and all of the. There's a consistent theme there that the party's over, Labour's on the wrong side of history. Um, so the origin question, and then the death question. That's the two, and then the third one which seems to me are far more important because both of them assume an inevitability to Labour's rise and fall. There's a sort of deterministic view of history unfolding and um, the laws of history and all that, which I've, I'm always resistant to that sort of deterministic approach. And there is a different way of approaching it, which is what is the purpose of Labour? Rather than looking at an essential purpose attached to a specific rise and fall of a class, why not see it as a way of it's always been a labor labor has always been an alliance of different organizations factions traditions and look at it as the way a vehicle that where these different traditions are bent through and can you tell a different story not just based on a rise and fall but its relative success in weaving together these different elements that have always been within it and indispensable to the labor tradition and can you tell a story about labor history through these three what i call traditions of justice and um, the relative success of Labour putting together together or not. And that's very different to the factional view which dominates Labour history, especially within, about some definitive truth to what Labour's about in terms of the purpose question. I think the purpose question is much more open-ended and fluid, and there was no definitive creed or 
um, definition of what labour is. I see it more as a way of combining different traditions within an overall political project. And so I call that the purpose question, which is, has remained unresolved despite the views of various Labour Party factions. Absolutely. And I mean, I know in the book you don't um, particularly want to uh, concentrate on individuals, but one individual I do have to um, ask about is someone who was at the very start of the book, Ramsay MacDonald. And his um, place in the history of the Labour Party has obviously changed over subsequent decades. Do you think we're at a point now, in 2024, 100 years after he first became Prime Minister, that we can have a reasonable view of MacDonald and a proper analysis of both his merits and and, and some of the um, uh, negatives that many of his detractors apply to him without falling into the trap of just labelling him as a quote-unquote traitor. Right, exactly. And and that, I mean, it, the more you investigate this, it seems to me, whilst Keir Hardy has been sanctified by Labour, um, Keir uh, Ramsey MacDonald is often perceived, perceived as a sellout to the cause, the first Prime Minister who succumbed to the bankers in 1931 and the establishment. And is, you know, from the left, He's viewed as a traitor from the right. He's viewed as an inadequate or incompetent or something like that. Mm. But if he, my view has always been, if, if Ramsay MacDonald had died in the 1920s, he would be revered and celebrated on a par with Hardy because mm. he was an extraordinary true Labour pioneer. He was a brilliant orator, a fantastic organiser, um, tactician, a major intellectual force. He'd written 12 books through the 1920s. He, you know, you can say he sort of helped build Labour and helped virtually destroy it as well. I mean, we lost 225 seats in 1931. But lest we forget, he was the first secretary of the uh, Labour Representation Committee, a position he held for 12 years. Um, he, he was a brilliant tactician who, who oversaw uh, secret negotiations with the Liberals, which helped ensure Labour's 29-seat breakthrough in 1906. He he actually lost the leadership or the chairmanship of the parliamentary party on his principal position against the First World War, which meant he lost his seat as well as his, his chairmanship of the party. And he suffered great personal hostility and animus because of that. Um, and arguably... Uh, in 1922, he successfully got back in as an MP and then as a leader, but and and he became arguably the most significant politician of the 1920s. So so his sort of nuance and complexity has largely been removed. And should we not forget, in the calamitous events of 1931, ten others of his colleagues in cabinet accepted his proposals in terms of managing the budget. You know, the cabinet was split. An awful lot of people who were the most virulent hostile to MacDonald in the years later, supported him and his proposals in Cabinet for the 56 million budget cuts in 1931. So, you know, um, I think you can say he he, he made calamitous decisions, but for honourable reasons. You know, and I, and I think David Marker wrote a brilliant book um, about Ramsay MacDonald, which I think reclaimed his contribution but I think we still need to go further because part of the problem with labour history is we're attached to this mythology and this romanticism of history and we lose context and nuance never more so than with McDonald I mean 
And moreover, I mean, the politics of austerity hasn't just bedeviled that government, it's bedeviled every single Labour government throughout history. So, you know, um, there was a tragic quality to 1931, and it was a tragic quality to the rest of McDonald's life, actually. It's a really sad story for such an extraordinary individual. So part of me wants to say, um, and probably the greatest mistake he made was which is a really what-if sort of counter in Labour history, if you'd argue what happened if in 1931 Ramsay MacDonald had accepted the advice of John Maynard Keynes and built a British New Deal and resisted austerity mm -hmm. and reflated the economy and the international currency regime. This is before um, FDR mm -hmm. had built the New Deal in the, the early to mid-30s, the first and second New Deals in America, that could have been an extraordinary legacy. But he resisted that partly because, as I mentioned earlier, this notion of the inevitability of socialism or gradualism and socialism meant that Labour was less equipped on the policy side of things as it should have been in those early periods. And arguably it rose too quickly um, and was too successful um, in coming to power in the two minority governments in the 30s. So I think there's a story to be told about trying to import a bit more nuance and context and acknowledgement of the extraordinary contributions that MacDonald gave to the Labour movement for decades before the calamitous events of 1931. Mm, absolutely. And I think it's something really important that you touch upon there is that the mythology that is often associated around certain figures in the Labour Party, Keir Hardy perhaps, is, is the most mythologised figure uh, in the Labour Party. I've spoken to um, Chris uh, Clark, who's written about this extensively in terms of the myths that we have uh, often in, in, in the Labour Party and, and, and the broader left. Do you think that it's something that the Labour Party specifically suffers more from than other political parties? Or do you think across politics there's a tendency to mythologise certain figures and create myths that appeal to this faction or the other? It's quite interesting because I think the you could say Thatcher is mythologised in the Conservative Party and, and mm. in very different ways to someone like for her successes. And 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 Blair is mythologised in Labour circles. And in my view about just going to Thatcher and Blair as examples of this, um, those people who are left at the end of the period of these extraordinary political figures, their career, they tend to be the most hardline supporters of them who were there at the death right, of their... The, the, when the tragedy played out, when they were got rid of in different ways. And they sort of tend to dominate the interpretation of the contribution and have lost some of the context and the depth of their political contributions earlier in their careers. Um, the consequence of which they tend to be simplified. The contribution seems to be sort of truncated and, um, and it loses its depth especially the case with Blair. I tried in the book to re rethink Blair legacy because we tend to look at it like Keir Hardy, sorry, like Ransom McDonald. And many of you, Blair is a traitor, which is, in both instances, it seems to me quite ridiculous. They were trying to grapple with all sorts of different challenges. Um, the early Blair period, I think, was a really creative period where they welded together these three traditions of justice in, in a brilliant political project that captivated many, many millions of people. And um, 
built three big majorities. I mean, I think it went, it changed. The real question about New Labour is how it changed rather than what it was. You can't just simplify it to one thing because it was empowering, evolved or or reduced into something that was very different to what it started from. So, but the way these myths are made, um, it also means that Labour is ill-equipped to own its own history, really, for good or bad, and it creates a simplistic history where the different factions demarcate Labour history in ways that lose its essence as a coalition. That's that's always my view, and it loses the plural quality necessary for reconciliation and to rebuild. So this myth-making, this romanticism, this attachment to certain forms of history is very damaging within Labour. And I think it partly accounts for the turbulence within Labour history where we've had this dreadful defeats because often when we lose we're out of power for a very long time when we lost in 1931 we're out of power for 14 years when we lost in 1951 we're out of power for 13 years when we lost in 79 we're out power for 18 years since the loss in 2010 we've been out of power for 14 years and counting hopefully that will change within a few months but intermittent victories are often followed by very long periods in opposition. And I think that's partly because of the factionalism and the myth-making and the political backfilling that goes with this desire to reinterpret Labour history, depending on which faction you belong to. And, and that is to the detriment of Labour as a electoral, agile political force. And you um, you touch upon the, the different types of... Um justices that you reference there and you reference throughout the book. Could you just explain what you mean by these particular um, types of different types of justices? Well, what I try to do in the book is, is, is go back to political philosophy, really, and trying to have a new sort of portal or entry point into Labour history. Because I said it's usually by faction or biography. And if you look at political philosophy, if you look at works like people like Michael Sandel and his conception of justice and the different kinds, you tend to alight on three different approaches to justice. If you talk to a lot of Labour Party members, they'll tell you, well, we, we believe in a just society, which is all well and good, but that can mean very different things to different people. So it seems to me to try and unpack that notion of justice is a different way to navigate Labour history. And if you look at it, it seems to me there's three. And these are basically competing views about how society should be organised. The first one seeks to maximise questions of um, human welfare, primarily utility. They tend to be distributional in terms of material resources. It's often associated with Fabianism, but it's also parts of labourism and um, characterised by this and welfare economics, whereby it's about the distribution, who gets what. And that has been the dominant approach both on the left and the right of the Labour Party throughout the years. And so it's a question of scale rather than qualitative difference between these factions on this time. They share more than they actually disagree with. I would like it. So that's one, maximising questions of human welfare. Um, material justice, distributional justice, let's call it that. The second one um, goes back to the Magna Carta or the Civil War, um, which is about maximising questions of liberty and freedom. For, for people. Um, it has a rich, proud history in terms of uh, figures like John Lilburn or the Levellers or the Diggers or Chartism. Um, I separate different types 
to do with legal equality or um, human rights or political or constitutional reform, but they all share this theme around maximising human liberty and freedom, especially um, in the aftermath of the Second World War, tyranny and fascism. This came to the fore in terms of international conceptions of human rights and very much informed Attlee's approach to what the New Deal was about, his New Deal in terms of building a welfare state, economic and social rights for all citizens. So that's the second bit. Inform five decades of legislation from Roy Jenkins onwards about codifying or legislating um, issues of equality, racial, sexual, um, gender equality, culminating in the Equalities Act of 2010. And the third one, which is often described as ethical socialism, which is really about maximising questions of human virtue, um, has a real long history within Labour and the prehistory of Labour. Hmm. Um, before the Labour Party was formed in the 1880s, 1890s, the dominant approach was what used to be described as the religion of socialism. This notion of how do you create a life well lived? What is it to be to live a good life and contest the human degradations intrinsic to capitalism? Um, it, it's informed questions of uh, working class self actualization, it's informed questions of community rebuilding civic virtue, um, civil um, citizenship itself. In terms of the economic sphere, it focuses on the guild socialist tradition of contesting the ownership of production and um, economic democracy, industrial democracy, control of the uh, means by which capitalist commodities are produced. Um, so it's, it's not just distributional or it's not just about human liberty, it's about human actualization what it is to be human in and of itself. Um, and those three traditions are are all indispensable to Labour history, but they're very different. And, it, you know, you've got the Fabian tradition or the uh, liberal progressive tradition um, or the uh, ethical traditions. How these are weaved together, I think, is a different way of telling the story of Labour history. And, I mean, how do you think thinking of the first Labour majority government, the 1945 government, the Attlee government, how do you think that government was able to, to weave those traditions together? Right. Well, that, I have a very different approach to Ali, <laughs> specifically Ali himself, but also that government than a lot of the history, which sees it as quite a orthodox, utilitarian approach in terms of the approach to nationalising 20% of the British economy, um, quite centralising um, Whereas I think, rather than just being about that form of distribution of justice, it was a much broader coalition. Firstly, because of Attlee's own story with the continuity Attlee brought with the history of ethical socialism and the Labour pioneers of Ramsay MacDonald, Keir Hardy, George Lansbury. I mean, the continuity formed, you know, Clement Attlee in 1908 helped form the Stepney branch of the ILP. He was a real radical, genuine radical socialist. Um, he wasn't this little mouse that Dalton once described, or this this manager that a lot of people think as this technocrat, you know, mm. manager. He was a much deeper um, figure um, anchored within the ethical socialism of, uh, and the idealism of the Edwardian period. And he hid a lot of it within this orthodoxy, what I call its rib cage of tradition. But he provided continuity with the pioneers of labour and that ethical socialist tradition. Secondly, he did have and oversaw quite brilliantly a new generation of 
economists concerned with distributional justice who learned the lessons of the 1920s that Labour need to have a proper economic strategy. Brilliant generation of Hugh Getskill, Harold Wilson, you know, uh, um, Evan Durbin, and a number of others who, who, who rose to prominence, brilliant young economists under the tutelage of um, Hugh Dalton, who transformed Labour's economic approach, the distributional utilitarian tradition, if you want. So that was locked in, as well as the early socialist ethical traditions. And thirdly, which is often under-acknowledged, is Attlee very much learned from Roosevelt and the New Deal in the um, 30s in America in the way they confronted fascism there. But the wider development of New Deal politics across the globe in terms of the evolution of human rights. And he quite specifically saw the development of the welfare state as a way of um, consolidating some of this approach to human rights, questions of liberty and freedom into the development of Labour's post-1945 strategy. And there is a continuity there because in the 30s, Attlee himself had been a key figure in the inaugural meeting of the National Council of Civil Liberty. So there's there's a continuity in terms of the traditions of liberty and justice. And, and I think rather than just being this um, somewhat pale, insignificant manager of these great big figures within his cabinet, um, Attlee combined these three traditions in quite a unique way, the first time in Labour history, and showed what a potent political project you could build if you unite these traditions. It's not a question of picking and choosing. Um, it's a question of creating that pluralist internal democracy and forms of leadership that can cohere these within an overall political strategy of national renewal. And that's exactly what I think we brought to the table, which is a bit of a rereading or a, a different interpretation of his role. But I think you can back it up in terms of his diaries, his unwritten work, his um, some of his uh, speeches and contributions, and especially the early history of Attlee in the East End and the IOP, and his links with probably the great proponent of ethical socialism, George Lansbury, um, in uh, in East London politics, from actually right from the beginning. I mean, literally, Attlee was living at one end of Mile End Road, and George Lansbury was living at 29, 39 Bow Road at the other end. So, and that, there was very little distance between them. So the politics of East London is absolutely critical mm. in the way these different traditions were united. And, and something that I find fascinating as well, moving on to that uh, period in, in, in the 50s and, and, and then going into the 60s when Labour was out of power and then came back into power uh, under Harold Wilson, is the Labour Party's relationship with science and technology, particularly um, the, the sort of seemingly scientific and technological or, or purported scientific and technological achievements of the Soviet Union uh, at the time. How do you view that relationship in terms of the way that the Labour Party at the time viewed the Soviet Union? And do you think that it's interesting when comparing the kind of views of communism, the Red Scare in the United States and comparing them uh, to the United Kingdom that we didn't have a, a, a similar red scare in, in, in the UK. Yeah, on the contrary. I mean, Wilson um, was hugely um, impressed with the notion of state planning, five-year planning, and uh, the technological overhaul of Soviet Union, and some of the deployment of Taylorist technologies, if you want, in, in, and the forces of capitalist production, which I would to the development overall well-being of the Soviet people in, in terms of the development of Marxist-Leninist approaches to 
reordering society. Um, and you can see, and there are continuities there with a lot of the uh, politics of the 20s and 30s in the Labour Party, and actually earlier, right from 1917, and the approach to, you know, there was a there was a major day conference immediately after the Soviet Revolution back in 1917, where Ramsay MacDonald was one of the speakers in favour of the revolution um, or the rejection of czarism, actually. But but it, it, and obviously the Red Scare politics after 1924. The so-called Campbell case finished the nine-month Labour first Labour government. It was followed with the Zinoviev letter. Mm. I mean, the great. I mean, even though the 1924 Labour government is not seen as heralding any major changes apart from housing, maybe foreign policy. What it did is succeed in precisely the way Macdonald wanted and demonstrate that Labour could govern when the press were obsessed with the Bolshevik mm. domestic threats. Um, and I, I think we can barely appreciate the scale of that turbulence, you know, at the time, including the king, who was a who was who was a cousin of the Tsar. So, um, and you see that through the Socialist League in the thirties, some of the debates around um, a wider political front to resist fascism, um, some of the ways that the Socialist League was eventually disbanded or thrown out the party. So this uncomfortable, slightly schizophrenic relationship with the Soviet Union and the wider communism. But one thing can be sure that um, Wilson himself was a, an admirer of that sort of um, state economic strategy deployed from within the Soviet Union and he visited reg regularly. Um, some implied later that he was a spy. But, you know, there, there, there were wider sort of political spin-offs of that admiration. Uh, but I think he, and, you know, he was a trained economist. Um, his view was, you know, you could harness uh, technological change um, in terms of quite a utilitarian approach to economic change and material justice, which um, which is funny because the present Labour, Labour opposition is very much trying to remodel their own Domestic economic strategy and search for growth in a similar ways to to Herr Wilson in uh, the early sixties and the National Plan was arguably the most um, sophisticated strategy to re-engineer and contest the comparative economic decline of the country and its comparative productivity shortfalls, which has a real resonance today through challenging the role of the Treasury, rebuilding an industrial strategy. Now it didn't last very long. And it was historically been judged a failure. But, you know, I mean, it's, it is time to revisit that Wilson period because even though history has judged it negatively, um, you could argue it was asking all the right questions, um, questions that reappear regularly and, you know, are upstream of some of the terrible economic circumstances we find ourselves in today in terms of enduring productivity problems. Oh, manufacturing problems and et cetera, et cetera. So it's a long way of answering your question. But that question of, you know, Labour's relationship with the idea of central economic planning and the growth strategies deployed in the East is a really interesting way of looking at the Wilson period. Even though I should add, the Wilson government is, is remembered less for its growth strategy, which has tended to be seen as a failure, and it barely lasted a year, really, as the national plan. Um, and more for his question of civil 
liberties and um, equalities and questions of freedom and justice rather than economics. So, despite the fact that that um, Wilson himself was was somewhat more of a utilitarian than a libertarian, shall we say, his um, his government embarked on some pioneering reforms of public life in ways that focused on enhancing human freedom in ways that um, have endured to today. Do you think that, um, because as, as, as you point out, Wilson himself was more of a utilitarian, but many of the great achievements were um, not of a, a utilitarian bent, do you think that this demonstrates how viewing history simply through the lens of key individuals, leaders, right. can be a bit of a misnomer and that it, it minimises the impact of an entire cabinet on, on changing history? Uh, I, I think that's exactly right. I think that is exactly right. Well, and, and I, that's what I've tried to sort of suggest in the book is to say, look, um, we've been missing something to all of this, and this question of justice allows for a more, a different, a rerouting of history, rather than see. I mean, I look, I love these biographies. I mean, my colleague Nick Simmons, Thomas Simmons, has written some great biographies, um, as has. Ken Morgan, George Shepard, you know, I love it. And John Buell in terms of Adam Lee. They're fantastic, brilliantly colourful stories, incredible figures. And I, I don't mean to diminish the significance of that, but I tend to think that it's sort of, it considers history through the prism of these individuals, whereas more often than not, they've been victim of wider forces and they themselves are carriers of deeper traditions of thought. You know, that's not to say that they're running around talking about Locke and Bentham, you know, but they are embedded with some of these ideas. They might not know it, but these ideas are arguably the powerful things that influence politics behind the backs of the actual drama. So my thing was to try and say, well, how might we inspect some of that stuff and try and unpack it? Because there's very little history about the history of political thought within Labour, which I find is really odd. Um, Henry Drucker wrote a good, good book on this. Um, Jeffrey Foote wrote a really good book on it, but there's not that many. And my attempt was to try and have a have a go at it through this question of what is a just society, you know, that has, that has influenced, albeit more often than not they don't realise it, but has influenced all Labour politicians all Labour politicians come from or are situated within these different deeper traditions, arguably apart from Keir Starmer, which is an interesting question because he's come to politics so late and he hasn't got, you know, every political leader rises through their party, right? Usually, they're usually a product of factions or traditions of thought or organisations. They've written books and they've situated themselves within liberal progressive traditions or utilitarian traditions or these factions or ethical traditions, apart from Keir Starmer, which is a really interesting question to me about why that is and what the consequences of that. But usually, I think I think it's a good way of rerouting your way through Labour's story, which is dramatic, turbulent, and extraordinarily difficult to navigate because of the highs and lows and been in power 33 years out of 100 only three of our 23 leaders have won general elections, majorities of general elections. Um, it's a story of immense highs, you know, welfare, 
socialized medicine, pioneering equalities legislation, but terrible defeats, factional intolerance, wretched internal cultures, big collisions with the electorate. And how do you account for the highs and lows of that? And I think biography doesn't really get you there. But this question of how these different traditions bend through the later stories are good. I think it is because I think it's a good way of, you know, resetting that conversation. Yeah. And in terms of the um, various factions, which you, you, you mentioned there, and the fact that factions often colour uh, the way that so many people view Labour history, how much do you think the attraction of, of people to particular factions is often down to philosophical agreement and how much of it do you think is down to the fact that there are particular personalities situated within those factions that draw people into right. them? Right. Well, let me give you an example. I've never met that many combatants on the far left who are that aware of Marxism who know that much about it, really, to be honest with you. And similarly, I don't, I don't meet many advocates of revisionism who were that clued up on Bernstein and the history of social democracy? You know what I mean. I don't, yeah. I don't you know. So even though they they self-identify as factional combatants, more often than not, they pick teams, right, or individuals, and they're not fully, you know, conversant of the intellectual traditions that define these factions. So it becomes highly personalised, and it and quite simplified. And therefore, the myth-making can kick in, you know? And that that's sort of the building this canyon down the middle of the party becomes easy between left and right, and that's yeah. how we understand it. Our guys, their guys. Whereas, to be put it bluntly, an awful lot of the hard left and the hard right and the left are exactly the same, right? They are very similar in terms of their method, their sort of utilitarian approach to mm. what constitutes justice, their centralised command and control approach to state capture, you know, to deliver socialist change, their views of party domination and factional contest, and they have a very similar views. They're sort of the sort of the equivalence in terms of their approach to how they understand the history. You know, it's sort of it comes from us the it, they they invert history, but it's very similar ways of looking at it, um, which I always find funny. Um, their lack of interest in the intellectual wiring of their traditions and their similarities between the two. Um, and that sort of rips complexity from Labour's story, which means that you can't really own the victories and the defeats. And I think that accounts for some of the dreadful losses because of the internal culture that is informed by this. Um, so therefore, can you reclaim other exile traditions and ways of looking at it that might allow for a more pluralist, inclusive culture and approach to governance as well. And one of the things that I find interesting is, as you mentioned, uh, you know, various Labour histories, is that sometimes, particularly from um, those Labour historians on the left, you get an interpretation of revisionism and in particular new Labour as sitting outside the tradition of the Labour Party. And do you think that that's merely a case of an unwillingness to accept that revisionism exists within the traditions of the Labour Party? Or do you think that it's a case that maybe that there is some point that new Labour itself, hence the, the new in, in, the, uh, in the title, 
is distinctly different from what came before? Well, I would see, you see, I would argue, you see, what you usually see is that revisionism is a method on the labor right to, to um, create a more contemporary labor politics. So, um, well, my view is that there's a left and a right revisionism within the history of labor, right? There's ways of different types of revisionism. Um, and they're both vital in, ter in terms of ensuring that labor remains an agile, um, contemporary political project. So I would see Benism as including some revisionist elements inherited from the new left revisionism of the post-war era, which was a recoiling against the utilitarian authoritarian traditions of orthodox Marxism um, and Stalinism. And, and so the new left is a key revisionist force outside of, but one foot in, one foot out of Labour, right? Similarly, the 50s revisionism of Crossland and some of the ethical revisionism of the period. There's different shades of revisionism on the left and the right of the Labour Party. And so we need a much more complicated story. So, so new Labour can be seen as a way of harnessing these two different types of left and right-wing revisionism within Labour that pulled it together. And similarly, the post-war Adley government was of a similar character. And I would see it as a way of uniting these traditions of justice and the way that they are revisionism at its best across the Labour Party is, is methods of refreshing Labour with recourse to these different traditions of justice. Um, so revisionism is not the sole preserve of one faction or factional tradition. It's a vital component of a uh, you know of a reimagined labour politics for the modern day, and that is that is a, that is a drumbeat through history. Um, so the revisionism, the economic revisionism of the thirties was vital, as well as the fifties, the post-war approach to human rights. Um, these are all elements of revisionist thinking, um, and they're absolutely vital to. Uh, you know, ensure that um, Labour isn't just an instrumental, stale political project um, beholden to factional advantage. Um, so it's uncomfortable at its best. Revisionism is uncomfortable and challenging. Um, and that's true very much of parts of the Benis tradition, parts of the New Left, um, which informed elements of New Labour as much as the 50s and um, the modernise of the 80s, etc. So it's a, a vital life force within a political party and its evolution. And you mentioned um, Keir Starmer earlier, and obviously you touched upon him uh, in the book. I just wondered, in terms of the comparison between him and Ramsay MacDonald, both of them are on the uh, the, the cover of the, the book, how do you feel that they compare in terms of their place within the Labour Party and in terms of the, the, the way that they interact with the sort of the, the broader traditions of the Labour Party? That's a really good question. I mean, well, the, the differences are, are obvious and in the sense of Ramsay MacDonald's history in the party as an ideologist, as an organiser. Um, I, I mean, Keir Starmer doesn't have that back history. He has a very different back history, but both share a desire for moderation, um, <clears throat> which I find really interesting because that, that tension between 
moderation and radicalism lies at the heart of um, labor history. It was ever present even at the rally to celebrate the successful 1923 election in uh, weeks before the, the actual first labor minority government. Literally, Ransom MacDonald is preaching the virtual moderation to a mass party that resembled a, a religious movement in its desire for a new socialist commonwealth. And that tension is ever, ever present. Um, it's tension there that's acute today where we've got a country almost disintegrating and the desire for radical change, but at the same time, the leadership's search for and preaching of moderation. And it's totally understandable because it's very difficult for Labour to win. So there's only narrow paths to victory. And so you can understand the desire to preach moderation and reassurance. But the real danger for me is, what does that mean in terms of a mandate to change? Ramsey MacDonald um, jettisoned the wealth tax right, in 1924, the nationalization programs, um, the public works programs. Um, because he hasn't had that historical association with different traditions and factions in Labour, can move very quickly between different groups. He's not attached to or bound to different traditions. So he's moved very quickly since when he got elected and the agenda he got elected on. We'll see how that plays out, though, because, you know, whilst it means that he's very agile, it means there's a sort of elusive quality to him in terms of where does he fit within this history, um, which is used to great purpose. But, you know, there's also this recurring theme of, well, what is the agenda beyond preaching the virtues of moderation, especially in a country disfigured by housing crisis, cost of living crisis, the ecological challenges, you know, the epochal changes in new technologies, um, you know, the rise of authoritarian populism across the globe, where will Labour situate in all of these things and what will be the agenda that, you know, we are, we are yet to fully see what that is beyond the message and language of moderation and reassurance. Indeed. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, John. It's been uh, great to speak to you, but I do have one final question. Uh, this book obviously details the first hundred years uh, of the Labour Party, but if you were to journey into uh, the, the future, if you were to go 100 years into the future, where do you hope the Labour Party would be and where do you think the Labour Party will be? Well, I mean, it touches on the question we were talking about earlier about the uh, origins question and the death question. I, th I see the Labour Party as um, an agile institution that has through different forms of revisionism has demonstrated a capacity to reinvention and is not captured with backward-looking false ideologies or factions. Um, so there is this inherent creativity within it that's driven because of these com competing visions of justice. Now, given, it seems to me, uh, call me naive, but given the environmental challenges you know, question the, and the technological challenges that question the, you know, that, that challenge the integrity of the human being, mm. right? This seems to me to create fertile ground for a new humanist labor politics, ethical politics, um, as well as does, does the patterns of wealth and inequality, um, 
that will allow for you know new forms of economic and social rights that build on these traditions of uh, freedom and human rights within labor history and aligned with you know if we can provide new compelling visions of distributive justice whereby it's um capital is allowed to freelance as has sort of surfed the last decades with little accountability in terms of its contribution um meanwhile the tax taker on average workers is increasing all the while because mm -hmm. it's not fairly distributed so the question of tax is not just income but wealth allows for a new vision of distributional justice so these three traditions seem to me are highly contemporary in terms of their usefulness in terms of navigating the modern world and providing and cohering around a new vision of politics and the country so it seems to me if we can have a leadership that can harness all three the future is very bright but it's going to be very bumpy um get there because um you know the three parties or the traditional social democracy has lost its moral component very um, the post-war model wanted to civilize capitalism, you know, attack the market. Um, it lost a lot of its potency in the Blair, Schroeder, Clinton era, and it's lost its moral potency. That's arguably what Corbyn brought for a while. Um, Labour needs to discover that ethical tradition. Um, and also it needs to discover its radicalism around distributional justice, around patterns of wealth. And also rediscover its liberalism. Even though liberalism is changing all the time, I think it needs to discover a real new approach to questions of liberty in defense of the human condition given these technological challenges. So I'm quite optimistic, but it's going to be, I'm optimistic. Well, I'm hopeful, not optimistic. Should we say it? Perhaps the, the, the best way to be, to be hopeful then. Well, uh, thank you once again uh, for taking the time uh, to speak to me, John. If people want to buy the book, uh, where should they go to to purchase a copy? They get it anywhere and get a Guardian bookshop, um, policy bookshop, um, any any Waterstones, you know, get it anywhere. Fantastic! Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Will, for having us again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, I hope you listen to the next one.